0: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to It's Rainmaking Time. This is Kim Greenhouse. It gives me great pleasure to welcome back Dr. Huggins. We just had him on about a month ago to talk about a whole systems approach to dentistry. He is a renowned dentist who actually refused to put in mercury amalgams and lost his license as a result of it. And he is the author of 25 books, just a few you might have heard of, It's All in Your Head, Uninformed Consent, Who Makes Your Hormones Hum, and Find Your Ancestral Diet. Dr. Huggins has his own protocol for health and wellness and works with many dentists around the country and around the world who look to him for a totally advanced approach to dentistry and to health. We're going to be talking about dental decay today because maybe it turns out that most of us don't know what it is, where it comes from, the traditional way that dentists look at dental decay, and how Dr. Huggins looks at and deals with dental decay. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome Dr. Hal Huggins back to its rainmaking time. Good morning.
1: Well, thank you, Kim. It is a wonderful thing to start the day with you. You're always very uplifting, and now I am uplifted. Thank you. with it. Thank
0: you. Well, first thing I want to ask you is how do traditional dentists diagnose dental decay?
1: Well, a dentist, number one, is going to look in the mouth because sometimes decay is uh, kind of black colored, and you take a real sharp little instrument called an explorer, and you poke around the tooth, and if you fall into a hole, that's a cavity. Those are fairly easy to find. Uh, The majority of them are in between the teeth, And here you have to see those on x-ray. So x-ray is the primary way of determining where decay is if you can't see it visually on the biting surface of the tooth or on the side of the tooth.
0: Today, they are using digital x-rays. Do you like them? Do you not like them? Do you feel you can see better with them?
1: Well, that's a good question. I suppose I need to come up with a good answer. Um, You know, I learned to take x-rays over 50 years ago. And the quality of x ray at that time was superb. And I don't know that the digital, and, and you know, we were using like a 30th of a second of x ray. Well, that's not a whole lot of x ray, and that was a whole lot better than what was available just even five or ten years before then. So I considered that uh, pretty safe and still do. But the public, of course, is more afraid of. X ray than they are of coffee, though maybe it should be the other way around. Uh, so they have come up with a digital which uh, puts out even less X ray. The advantage of digital is that you can alter the, what's called the contrast, that is the black white intensity. So you can turn a little knob and be able to identify x-ray, where in the past if you took a picture and it was too light, you had to come back and take another picture. Well, the advantage now is you take one picture and you can alter the contrast, the black-whiteness of it, and pick up cavities easier than you could before. So, yes, it is definitely an improvement over 50 years ago, but not a great deal of improvement because, really, 50 years ago, it was uh, pretty blooming accurate.
0: So, that's another way to tell potential cavities or decay in between teeth. You were talking about that.
1: Yes. And then you uh, cut a hole in it, and the way that I was taught was called extension for prevention. So if you've got a cavity that's uh, a sixteenth of an inch cross, well, you make it about five or six sixteenths of an inch uh, to get any of the little bacteria that might be... Infused out into the enamel, into the dentin, and by doing that, um, you are preventing a new cavity. Well, from people who have taken pictures of people's mouths every five years, you find that's not really true. And that if you, uh, in fact, somebody told me just last week, if you, when you have your first cavity done, that's a six thousand dollar procedure. Why? Well, you know, so well, when I graduated from school, it was five dollars to fill a tooth like that. now it's about two hundred and fifty. But if you fill it um with the conventional silver mercury filling, fifty percent mercury, then you find that, according to University of Colorado, the half life of uh the silver mercury filling is four and a half years, so that means at the end of four and a half years. If you placed 100 amalgam mercury fillings, 50 of them are going to have been replaced. And in another four and a half years, half of what's left is going to be replaced. So what happens is the mercury fillings do not really seal at the margins. And from the work done by Dr. Ralph Steinman at Loma Linda, I find that uh, bacteria and corrosion products are all the way around the bottom of the filling. Now, at the center we used to have here, uh, you know, we were taking out fillings because the people were reacting to mercury. And of those that did not show any decay on x-ray, look perfect on an x-ray, you take them out and 64% of them had decay underneath it that you couldn't see. So that does not really seal the tooth. Well, the $6,000, where does that come from? the filling has to be replaced. Well, when it's replaced, it's bigger, and then it has to be replaced. Well, by then, it's gone into the pulp chamber, so we have to have a root canal. If you have a root canal, then you have to have a crown put on it, and in another few years, that tooth's going to be extracted. You're going to have a bridge. Then the bridge comes out, and you're going to have to have a partial. Then a few more of those, you end up with a denture. Well, you're only about 15% or so of the population end up with dentures. But in that process, before you get to that, you're going to pay $6,000 at uh, 2010 prices. Now, by the year 2020, it's hard telling what those prices are going to be because they have, well, look how much they escalated since I went to school, from $5 to $250. Well, I'm Well,
0: hearing the progression of how it unfolds, and it's scary. But at the cavity level, what's the problem? Let's say the cavity is not filled with mercury. Okay. It's filled with something else.
1: Okay, they have plastic fillings, they have gold fillings.
0: What do you recommend and what's your priority and why?
1: Well, it depends on what the patient's priority is. Mercury, of course, is at the bottom of my priority list. I certainly would not want mercury put in my... Uh, mouth, but that's, uh, they're still placing, they will place a hundred thousand mercury fillings in the United States today. So it is still a fairly popular filling. Fifty percent of the dentists still use that. Uh, you can put in the plastics, and there are some, um, they're called composite. There are some problems with that because, uh, the ones that, uh, are more compatible with the immune system. Uh, don't last but about five or six years. The mercury fillings may last longer than that, but the patient may not last longer than that. So any of them that you put in of that type are uh, a five to ten year investment. Uh, I had gold inlays put in my mouth in uh, 1974 when I found out the hazards of mercury, And uh, all the three of them are still in there. Uh, A couple of them came out. I kind of bit down on it and (laughs) bent them a little bit so you couldn't put them back in. But that was a pretty good investment because they've been in there since 1974. So you don't have to go in and replace them as often. And uh, they're not toxic. So gold, regardless of the price, if we're just talking about health, gold is still the best thing to put in except 90% of the golds contain a whole lot of copper and our recent research has shown that copper is one of the big problems in creating the hazards that the bacteria in root canals uh, create. So dentistry is kind of hazardous to your health and the primary reason is that uh, dentistry has avoided picking up on where does dental decay come from. Can it be prevented?
0: Are you going to okay, answer
1: that? your next question. <laughs> um, yes, it can be. Uh, there was a researcher back years ago, 100 years ago, Dr. Weston Price, who traveled around the world looking for populations of people who didn't have dental decay. And he found them. And he found that there was a common denominator. They did not use what he termed the food of commerce. They were kind of isolated, like the Samoan islands, like the Eskimos, uh, people up in the mountains of uh, Switzerland, where they did not have basically sugar in their diet. And uh, he got permission in some areas to dig up the graves and examine the teeth. And in some of the areas he found at the time of death, which was usually between 70 and 80 years of age, Uh, these people had one cavity per 1,000 teeth at the time of death. And now it is very difficult to find that in kids two years old. And, you know, they haven't had their teeth very long. So where does uh, dental decay come from? Well, uh, if you can believe this as a quotation of science, the Dental Association had a vote on where they thought dental decay came from. And then Ralph Steinman, back in the 50s, uh, was a researcher at uh, Loma Linda University in California, and he did research there for, oh, gosh, what, maybe uh, 30 years or more. He did some very fine, the finest research on where dental decay comes from that anyone has ever done. And his work is not even taught at Loma Linda anymore, much less the rest of the dental schools. So my question is, why does dentistry not want you to know where cavities come from? You know, they say, oh, use fluoride and brush and floss your teeth and keep the bacteria level down.
0: What do you think about that?
1: Well, that's what I'm talking about today. What I think about it is that Ralph Steinman, in his over-70 publications over a period of 35 years, came up with where dental decay comes from. Dental decay is a systemic disease. It is not local factors. It's not a bacteria sitting on a tooth uh, with a drill uh, that drills a hole in a tooth and causes a cavity. Uh, That kind of goes along with tooth worms, which was uh, 200 years ago. There were tooth worms that caused dental decay. All right, let's look at it from the uh, scientific standpoint. Um, Steinman selected the rat as a model for human decay because the process of decay in a rat is identical to the process in man. Uh, Whether this shows something about evolution or not, I'm not sure, but that part of it is the same. Now, the diet that he selected to create dental decay was a 62% sugar diet, which is approximately what's in a candy bar, and he found that by... Feeding these animals a diet of 62% sugar, he could create about six cavities per, equated to man years, six cavities per year. Uh, Then he tried other things like milk, and with a diet of milk uh, as the total diet, he ended up with uh, approximately eight cavities per year, so more from milk than there was from the 62% sugar diet. Then he studied soy milk, which is very popular now. He got 9.6 cavities with soy milk per year. And then the winner was chocolate milk at about 23 cavities per year. So he found that um, the diet has a whole lot to do with where cavities come from. But what is diet doing? What diet is doing is stimulating a fluid flow through the tooth. Now, most of the time, we kind of consider teeth as non-living structures. Well, they are living structures. There is a pulp chamber in the middle of the tooth, and there is a fluid that comes from the bloodstream. It's blood serum that goes from the pulp chamber through the dentin, through the enamel, to the surface of the tooth when there is no decay because that's a self-cleansing action and it is bringing nutrient to all portions of the tooth. In fact, the dentin, which is the second layer of the tooth underneath the enamel, contains a chemical called chondroitin sulfate, which has something to do with uh, one of the metabolic shields, one of the things that keeps teeth alive. That regenerates, 50% of it regenerates every one hour, so the tooth is a living structure. And using radioactive a chemical called acroflavin hydrochloride, he was able to trace this fluid flow from the center of the tooth through the dentin, through the enamel, to the surface of the tooth in one hour. So that fluid flow went pretty fast. There was no decay. Now, if you turn that around so that you are feeding the 62% sugar diet instead of the Purina lab chow, which was considered pretty pure, then the fluid flow turned around. And it went from the mouth through the enamel through the dentin into the pulp chamber. So it could create death of the pulp chamber Because we see this in dentistry. You see a tooth that is dying. The pulp chamber is gone. You can see an abscess at the bottom. There's no decay in it. Hey, how'd that happen? Well, you got hit in the mouth with a baseball bat. No, there was never any trauma. Where did it come from? This is where it comes from. But mostly what it's doing, as the fluid comes into the tooth, it is bringing the debris and the bacteria from the mouth into the tooth demineralizing it on the way, which we see on x-ray as a black spot. That's demineralization, and actually from the x-ray, uh, this was one of the first courses I took when I got out of dental school, uh, showing that decay usually goes about four times further than what it looks like on x-ray. And what we did was to take x-rays, and uh draw pictures, draw a pencil line on the x-ray of how big we thought the filling was going to be. Then we would go back to our offices, fill that tooth, take an x-ray, and come back and see, oh, it's a whole lot bigger than we thought. So that's the advantage of catching decay early in the game, because by the time you see it, it is already penetrated. Well, this is a good idea if you weren't filling it up with mercury. But uh, Snyman carried this uh, study a little bit farther because um, he found that, um, you know, there were basically four things that dentistry was saying was causing dental decay. They were the hardness of the enamel, the acid attack on the enamel, bacterial invasion, and heredity. So he studied each of these four individually. But he started out feeding the 62% sugar diet by mouth then put the 62% sugar in a solution, put it in a stomach tube, and put it directly into the stomach so that it didn't touch the tooth. So if it didn't touch the tooth, there could not be an acid attack. Uh, It wouldn't have anything to do with the hardness of the enamel, it wouldn't have anything with the bacterial invasion. Putting it directly in the stomach, he found the same number of cavities in the same period of time. So then he went another step farther in injecting the 62% sugar diet into the body cavity. You know, just squirt it, not into the stomach, but into the uh, area around the stomach and the liver and all these guys running around in there, just squirt it in there. And he found exactly the same number of cavities. So this showed that there must be a systemic reason for dental decay. Well, what about the bacteria? Uh, this was rather interesting. I learned a new word, notobiotic. Now, what in the world is notobiotic? I'd never heard of that one before. A notobiotic <laughs> environment is one that has no bacteria, it is sterile. It's the bubble type of environment. So, in there, there were no bacteria. And what did he find? On a 62% sugar diet, he had exactly the same number of cavities. So, bacteria do not have anything to do with it except when the fluid flow is coming into the tooth it drags bacteria along with it now when I was in school there was a certain bacteria that caused dental decay and evidently there was a massive international meeting of bacteria and they changed that and today there's a different bacteria that is supposed to cause dental decay well just because it was standing there doesn't mean it's the cause and especially with the a notobiotic environment where there are no bacteria, if you still get cavities, how can you possibly say that bacteria cause dental decay? They don't. It is the demineralization when the, that occurs when the fluid is flowing into the tooth. Well, the next logical question is, who is controlling the fluid flow? And he found that that was an endocrine function. The hormone-producing gland, it is from the parotid gland. The parotid gland in the cheek manufactures a hormone called parotid hormone. When the parotid hormone is at a certain level, the fluid flow goes from the pulp chamber through the dentin, through the enamel, into the mouth. The teeth have a glisten to it, and people say, oh, what pretty teeth you have. When the parotid hormone excretion is lowered, then the fluids flow from the mouth through the enamel, through the dentin, into the pulp chamber, and the teeth have kind of a dull-looking appearance to them. And that's where you have the dental decay. Well, what is it that controls this is the next logical place to look, and diet is where it comes from, and that's why we look for the ancestral diet. Because when you are on the diet that your ancestors were eating 2,000 years ago, not your grandparents, but uh, way back, this is where you get your genetics from. When you're on your ancestral diet, the fluid flow is apt to go from the inside out. Well, the person who introduced me to the concept of dental decay was not Ralph Steinman, but it was Melvin Page at the other end of the country. He was down in Florida, and here Steinman was in California. The two of them together, put together, are the, as far as I can see, the total story on how to control dental decay. And I say that because Page had patients. Um, Steinman had rats, and Steinman did the radioactive studies and so on, did the hormonal studies, Melvin Page was using blood chemistry, and he found that when the serum phosphorus level dropped below 3.5 milligrams, there was dental decay. When it was 3.6 up to 4.0, there was no dental decay. And one thing that really amazed me, and I used to go down there about every other month to study with him... And it wasn't until the second year that he finally decided to start exposing his real truths. And he showed me a series of people. He'd been in practice for a long time. He'd been in practice maybe 65 years when I met him. And he showed records where people who had what's called rampant dental decay, which means probably five or six cavities every time you go to the dentist, he had records of people who had gone, from the time they received his treatment, they had gone 50 years without a new cavity, five zero, fifty 50 years without a cavity. He had records from people just going back into, I think Adam was one of the first ones on his list. But if you can go 50 years without a cavity, you get something. And what he was doing was watching the serum phosphorus, as long as he could keep it above uh, 3.5, they didn't have dental decay. Well, what he was doing was controlling the fluid flow through the tooth. So I put the two together. It was very obvious, wasn't hard to do, that when the serum phosphorus levels above 3.5, then the fluid flow is going from the pulp chamber through the dentin, through the enamel, into the mouth. Now, Paige got himself into trouble because... What Paige discovered was that the mouth is attached to the rest of the body. Now, (laughs) I have heard the statement that the mouth is the barometer of the body's health. Well, this happens to be true, that when you do not have dental decay, you're in pretty good health. Well, what Paige found was when he brought the phosphorus level above 3.5, arthritis disappeared. Heart disease disappeared. Some of the cancers disappeared all of these quote medical diseases you know each each profession has a franchise on diseases these diseases begin to get well so they said well you're practicing medicine he says no i'm not i'm just healing up the gums and healing up the teeth uh preventing dental decay well the same process the same endocrine system does not is not limited just to the parotid gland When the parotid gland is functioning properly, then all the glands are functioning properly. So diet is a much bigger control. The ancestral diet is a much bigger control than we ever thought it was. I mean, you can put sealants on. Okay, what happens if you put sealants? That's kind of a a pig trail here.
0: What do you mean by sealants? You mean sealing up the cavities?
1: What sealants are is a thin coat of plastic that you put on over the tooth and it is sold to prevent dental decay. That's going back to the day of toothworms, saying that we will not have an acid attack, we will not have the bacterial invasion and so on, which Steinman proved a long time ago doesn't have anything to do with dental decay, but when you put the sealant over the tooth, you paint it with plastic, you put the light to it and it cures you stopped the physiological process of preventing dental decay. Now, this would be like uh, if, let's say that you don't want to breathe polluted air. So we put a clothespin over your nose and uh, duct tape over your mouth. You will not breathe polluted air. Now, you may not live very long either, but you're not going to breathe polluted air. This is
0: like a cliffhanger. So where are we going (laughs) <laughs> Who's on first?
1: Yeah. <laughs> Give me a few minutes here. Okay. I'm just presenting problems.
0: Sure. No, no, I'm excited. This is really profound because what you're saying here is that dental decay has really been understood for a, quite a while, but that information and that paradigm and those connections have not found their way to the mainstream of the dental world.
1: That's right. I talked to the professor of cariology. Now, what's a cariology? Caries is the dental term for dental decay. So the professor of cariology is the one who tells the dental students how to prevent dental decay. And I was talking to him, oh, this has been 10 or 15 years ago. I said, well, do you teach the work of Ralph Steinman? And he said, who? And that's what I'm talking about here. All this was published in the Journal of Dental Research, of all things, that certainly teachers in dental schools should be reading. And over a period of these years, all of these extremely scientific studies were presented. And yet it is not taught in dental school. Therefore, dentists don't know about it. Therefore, patients aren't told about it. They're told to put on the sealant. You put on the sealant, And what happens? Well, the tooth can't breathe anymore. That fluid cannot flow from the pulp chamber through the dentin, through the enamel, to the mouth. It is, you know, like a clothespin over its nose. And I've had many dentists tell me, yeah, we take off the sealant and you fall into a cavity in there that uh, is practically into the pulp chamber already. That's because the tooth has demineralized. In the absence of bacteria, it is demineralized because it has no more nutrition. As people, if we stop eating for a year or two, we're going to be dead. In fact, I think it's something like 60 days that you're going to die if you haven't eaten. Well, that's what happens to a tooth. If it is not supplied with its nutrient, then it is going to die internally also. So sealants are another cover-up. They do not prevent dental decay. They do not get at the cause. The cause is the high carbohydrate, high refined sugar is what slows down the parotid hormone function. And that allows the tooth to suck the debris from the mouth into it and to demineralize and to take nutrition away. Now... What is it that makes the fluid flow go the right direction? Protein. Protein stimulates the parotid gland so that not only are we creating healthier teeth, we're creating healthier bodies. And here's where my work, what I have done, is take these men's work and expand on it for the last several decades. And there are chemicals in the blood that tell us What's going on? For instance, the proteins in the blood. One of the most important ones is albumin. And I've noticed over the years that the, quote, normal level for albumin keeps dropping down, down, down. Why? Because people are getting to be less and less healthy, and there is a direct relationship between serum albumin and health And the normals are taken on what? Usually they're in hospitals, on people who are sick, where they got the blood drawn before they died, and you make the average of this, and 95% of those are called normal, by definition. If you want to get real picky, it's 95.56% of the population. Well, I have not noted that 95.56% of the population are in good health. It may be the opposite. So our target area is toward disease, not toward health.
0: I need to bring you back for a moment here. What allows for the phosphorus levels to be correct? How do we get those levels above 3.5? And what you're saying is, is that protein?
1: That is protein. Okay. Protein is what stimulates the function of the parotid gland. And the easiest way to follow this is look at the blood serum albumin level. Now, albumin is our primary detoxifier, and it is the primary transportation system. That all of the vitamins, minerals, hormones, amino acids, fatty acids, everything the body needs for survival, is transported on albumin. Albumin is considered, well, uh, it's considered somewhat of an insult, but it really isn't. They call it the tramp steamer of the, um, of the, of the blood system, because it comes originally, I think, out of the Amazon. The Tramp Steamer carries um, products that people need, and it also picks up waste. What sealants are is a thin coat of plastic that you put on over the tooth, and it is sold to prevent dental decay. That's going back to the day of toothworms saying that uh, we, we will not have an acid attack. An we will not have the bacterial invasion. Well, go <laughs> You're always five seconds ahead of me. You're pretty <laughs> sharp. If you're looking for a job, I'm going to hire you. Thank you. <laughs> right. When the albumin level is at 4.6 grams per cent, where most things are checked out in milligrams, these are great big, a 1,000 to 1 different, so albumin is a very large volume in the bloodstream. 4.6 is our target, and at 4.6 grams per cent, you will have maximum amount of delivery of nutrients and maximum amount of removal of toxins from the body going to the liver to be excreted. And what does it take to do that? It, it, it takes animal protein, which, you know, steps on the toes of the vegetarian. Vegetarians get along pretty well until they become mercury toxic or they react to their root canals or something. And then there's nothing I can do for a vegetarian. I cannot because albumin is of an animal source. Vegetarians get sick, the albumin level will be extremely high, like above 5. Okay,
0: but hold on one second here. Will eating eggs be helpful to that or not enough?
1: Both. It is helpful, but it's not enough.
0: Right. Okay.
1: But uh, as far as the vegetarian is concerned, when they have these very high levels, it means they are cannibalizing themselves. And, of course, they don't like to hear that. But, you know, I I try not to take a vegetarian for patients, mainly because I don't steal from people. If I take your money and you ask me to balance your chemistry and you're vegetarian, I can't do it. So you're going to give me something. I'm not going to give you anything in return, maybe a little bit in return, but not what I can usually do.
0: Can we talk um, about the levels,
1: uh, though? Like We'll start eating eggs, and we do see an improvement in their chemistries, but not a great deal. Eggs are still a very good food. I mean, they must be a complete food. They make a complete chicken. So it is good, but it depends on your ancestral diet how much protein do you need. Some people need one or two ounces a day. Some people need 14 to 16 ounces a day. How do you determine that? And it's the blood chemistry. You're five seconds ahead. (laughs) It's the blood chemistry that shows how much protein you need. If you're eating the amount of protein you need, then the albumin and the globulin, the BUN, all the things that are involved in protein metabolism will be at the optimum level, which is not the normal range, but a very narrow point within the normal range at which we have maximum function.
0: Basically, in order to identify this, again, it's looking at the blood chemistry specifically to tell us what we need. Now, I learned about how the body cannibalizes itself when you don't have enough animal protein in my interview with Dr. Colgan. He actually wrote a whole piece about the optimal amount of protein and how you actually figure that out. But I think he'd be very interested in your perspective and your direction, which is also on the blood chemistry. I think he would find that fascinating, Dr. Michael Colgan.
1: Looking at it this way, it it took many years to determine what the perfect value is. But if you look at thousands of patients, I have 300,000 data points of chemistry in my files here. And after you've gone through 10, 20, 30,000 of them, you begin to see that there is a trend of high levels to come down, low levels to come up, but they even off at a certain point. And that's what I call the stability point. And if it's a little wider than that, we call it a stability range. Because like with the albumin, I want 4.6. If it's 4.5, you're going to drop dead? No. But as you get below 4.2, you cannot keep up with the body's demands. So how much protein do you need in your diet? The amount, well, two things. You need the amount of protein to keep that level above 4.2, but there's another major factor here. Just eating it does not digest it. There are other things involved with digestion, and if the digestion is working properly and the amount of protein that your ancestral diet is asking for is there, then you will have the levels between four point two and four point six. I'm at four
0: point five as of June of this year.
1: Congratulations. That's very good. Thank you. Yeah. Not that you'll live to be as old as I am, but you'll live to be an old lady.
0: I will live very long time as long as I stay in touch with you.
1: <laughs> you got a long <laughs> sentence, huh?
0: <laughs> Now, you also look at the serum phosphorus level, too.
1: Yes, because this indicates the balance. Yeah, now this is kind of interesting. Well, how much phosphorus do I have to eat? The serum phosphorus level has nothing to do with the amount of phosphorus you eat. You know, we get to thinking that the human body was put together by Henry Ford, and we're looking at radiators and gas gauges and oil gauges. Well, we're not because the serum phosphorus level is controlled by the balance of the endocrine glands. Our endocrine glands our hormone producers have an opposing hormone. It's like estrogen and testosterone. Uh, All males, all females produce both. Obviously the female more estrogen and the male more testosterone, but there is a balance point between estrogen and testosterone. And if one of them gets to overreacting, the other one is underreacting. It's like a tug of war. If it if things move one direction, the opposite side is moving the other direction. So when the phosphorus level drops below 3.5, something is out of balance. It doesn't tell you which one's out of balance, but something is. The thyroid is the first place to look because we mentioned a little bit about mercury. Well, mercury does fit in here. The mercury coming out of the silver amalgam fillings uh, hits the thyroid gland. This study was done by Stortebecker in uh, Sweden in 1962, and he showed that using radioactive mercury in the uh, amalgam fillings they placed in dogs, they found the radioactivity in the thyroid gland in less than four minutes. So if you have had a silver mercury filling in your mouth for more than four minutes, your thyroid gland has been affected. And the thyroid gland is going to help if it's under-functioning, hypo-functioning. It's going to pull the phosphorus level down. If it pulls it down below 3.5, you're susceptible to dental decay.
0: Understood. I would like to go back for just a moment, and I know you're in the process of sorting this out in the show. I'm not quite clear what to do with cavities. Am I subliminally understanding that part of it is the readjustment of the diet and doing a blood chemistry, but is it also maybe not to fill them? I'm not no, sure. it is
1: not to not fill them because if you do not fill a cavity, I mean, it's nice to stop it. And I keep hearing every year, oh, they're going to come out with something that regrows teeth. Uh, that 's kind of hard to do because the tooth is developed by what 's called the enamel organ, which is a uh, it 's kind of like the shell over an egg it, it 's a little organ that sits on top of the tooth and deposits calcium and so on and manufactures the tooth to have a pill that 's going to grow enamel is a little difficult now. Uh, in relation to that, Kim, uh, going back to Weston Price, he did find one area where, um, in the I think it was in the Samoan Islands, uh, they had a whole lot of material that could be used, uh, I think it was hemp, to make ropes out of, and so the trading people would come in with sugar and trade it for the hemp. Well, these people went nuts on eating sugar and they got lots and lots of decay and people began to commit suicide because the um, the pain was so great they couldn't handle it. And then they found other ways of making ropes and uh, stopped coming there and the decay stopped and recalcified. It was still black But you hit it, Price hit it with an explorer, and it was uh, almost as solid as uh, tooth enamel that it had recalcified. So if you want to move to an island that has no connection with the rest of the world, you can recalcify teeth. Uh, If you want to live in our society, you better get your tooth filled. But there are types of fillings in the plastics uh... there are something on the order of sixty percent of the plastic fillings contain aluminum and the aluminum seeps out and activates some of the bacteria in ways that we would not find healthy and this is research that we have just found in the last week as to finding out what is going on here and it is another one of the scary things that i've run into so using a compatible material is the best way out and even though gold is expensive it's a good investment because you know mine have been in there for what 40 years
0: didn't you say that gold has a little bit of copper in it
1: i said that 90 percent of the dental gold has copper in it and copper is going to create a problem too
0: so what are we filling our cavities with where do we go and what do we do
1: There are dental materials that are, uh, in general, they're called 90-10s. They have about 90% gold and 10% platinum. Gold is a little soft for a filling material, but if you add platinum to it, it becomes much harder. And what happens is it turns silverish in color, and that's why they put copper in it so it looks like gold again. But if you get the ones that contain 85 90% gold and the rest of it uh, platinum, and sometimes there's 1% of something else in there to increase the flow characteristics while casting it, that I don't have a problem with. But if you've got one that is very high gold and platinum and has very little other things in it, then you've got something that can last for years, And if you keep your chemistry in balance, it can last you the rest of your life, where the plastics are not going to last the rest of your life unless they shorten your life. And certainly the mercury does not last that long, and it has uh, very detrimental effects to your health.
0: So right now there's a lot of people, thanks to your work and Weston Price's work, that are not going with mercury in their mouth. They're going with the plastic, the white amalgam?
1: Uh, Yes, uh, amalgam means literally mixed with mercury, so it's not white amalgam. It's okay. plastic. But when I first started talking about mercury back in 1973, dentistry was placing a million amalgams a day in the U.S. That's the mercury filling. And today they claim they're down to hundred to 150,000 a day. Not real good ways of measuring that, but at least, uh, they have reduced it substantially since I started pointing out what it is doing. So but are
0: you telling me that the plastics have aluminum in them?
1: About 60% of them have aluminum. And it's, uh, you can see it on x ray. Uh, I remember some years ago, um, Somebody we had just hired been with me for a month or two. If you've worked for me for a while, you get curious about what's going on in your own body. And she came in and handed me an X-ray and said, what do you think of my X-ray? It was a big panorex, and I just picked it up and held it up to the light. And I said, said, you've got about seven amalgams in there. And she said, no, I've had my amalgams removed. Those are composites. And I looked again, and yeah, they... They weren't quite as bright as amalgam, but certainly much brighter than the safe composites. Uh, the composites that are safe don't last as long, but on the x-ray, it's hard to see them. But if they have high aluminum, they last longer, which is what dentistry is interested in. some reason, the dentists are taught you should put in a filling that's going to last for a million years. And, you know, then you go to the automotive industry and they have a whole industry in there uh, that uh, limits the lifespan of anything that you put in it, Uh, planned obsolescence it is called. Well, dentistry tries to make things last a long time, but at the expense of the patient's health. And this is a part that is not taught, so you can't blame your dentist for it. It's whoever is controlling the dental association. That of course, what's the primary thing here? What's the most important thing in the world? Money. You know, as long as you're interfering with people's money, you're going to get in trouble. And the dentist, the dental association, does not want to be sued for hiding this information. They've known about. Hey, the dental association destroyed itself in 1840 on the argument over mercury. Should we use it because it's cheap, or should we not use it because it poisons people? And it destroyed the association, which wasn't put back together until almost 1900. And then it was put back together under the premise that mercury is now safe. In fact, the Dental Association has been quoted saying, yes, mercury is the most hazardous uh, metal that's not radioactive. However, get this. In the mouth, its toxic properties are rendered harmless. I took a postdoctoral master's in immunology 20 years ago, and I told that to the professors there, and they were absolutely astounded that a profession with the reputation of dentistry could say that this being in the mouth rendered the toxic properties harmless. One of them, one of the professors said they must have discovered alchemy, but you know, why do they do it to prevent? being sued because the dental association, dentists, I mean, of all the diseases that dentistry creates, if this were suddenly made public on something big, uh, the only people in the world who had any money would be the lawyers, and we can't afford to do that, but dentistry, I have talked to U.S. Congress about, can't we say that anybody who places an amalgam after today is under the gun and if it was before today, uh, they're home free, and they said no, You cannot do that because it's been listed as fraudulent in the past. You cannot, you are not forgiven for that at seven years or any other. He said, when did you place your first amalgam? "Hmm, I thought a minute. I said, 1916. He said, you're still responsible for that amalgam and what it may have done to somebody. Well, hopefully it fell out a long time ago. Money is what's behind all this. I would like to go back to some of Steinman's work if we could, Kim. There are a couple of other things that need to be. uh Absolutely.
0: We can go back there in one moment. I want to go back to one thing for the audience. They are sitting there right now saying to themselves, where in the heck am I going to go? How am I going to get this material, this 90-10 or 85 to 90 percent? And then how am I going to get my dentist to fill my cavities with this? Oh, my God, what am I going to do? Yes. I don't want aluminum in my mouth.
1: That is a big problem because if you say, if a dentist, let's say that that Kim calls a dentist and says, is mercury harmful? And he says, yes, he's going to be selling used cars tomorrow because they will send him a letter saying your license is gone and don't bother to apply in the 50 states because we've informed them that you're a bad person and you're out of dentistry. So the dentist, if he stands up against the dental association, Uh, he's putting his neck on the line. Now, we do have people that we have trained who will do that. And if people want to call our uh, toll-free number, which, I don't know, maybe you've got it. I've got it here someplace.
0: 866-948-4638.
1: Yeah, that's it. Uh, We can perhaps guide you to somebody who can uh, assist you. If you're interested in health, we do have some people... Around the country, who will do that. And we can refer you there. But just to go shopping around through the phone book, um, number one, the dentist's going to hang up on you because he's going to think that he's being set up. Because all they have to do is send you a piece of paper that says uh, your eight years of education and hundreds of thousands of dollars of investment in it and so on. It's gone as of right now.
0: Is that what happened to you?
1: No, they took a month trial to to hang me. I think I was hit with something like 140, 150 different um, challenges of which the only things they could make stick were I refused to place amalgam and refused to refer somebody for placement of amalgam. Well, nobody ever asked, but that didn't come out. That was the result of the trial. And... Um, the second point was I refused to do root canals and refused to um, refer people to have root canals done. And the third one, <laughs> the really big one, that poor little book, It's All in Your Head, was challenged because I had written a book they didn't like called It's All in Your Head. That poor little book's been through court four times, and it was <laughs> done four times because it seems that even though my name is Huggins, in a court situation, I do have the right to express my own opinion. Now, of course, my opinion is based on these 300,000 data points of blood chemistry information over 42 years. And the, uh, this part never came out, but, uh, my trial did go to the appellate court or the Supreme Court, whatever it was, and, uh, they voted 3-0. That it should be absolutely, it was the dumbest suit that they had ever seen, and it should never have been brought to trial. And that the person they used as the scapegoat to sue me in this should pay my legal fees, <clears throat> which were substantial. That's what broke me financially. But get this, she declared bankruptcy so she would not have to pay, pay my attorney's fees. But two years later, she made a cash offer on a building of $960,000. Now, where would you find $960,000 tax-free in two years? There were several people who brought to my attention what had been done there, but it was the smartest thing the Dental Association ever did because it scared all the dentists into going back, placing amalgam, and not putting the Dental Association in the crosshairs. So, you know, they've had 30, 40 years of, they're a very large organization, like $2 billion, and um, nobody is bothering them. Some of the original people, it's a privately held club is what it is. It's not really a professional organization like the AMA and Nurses Association and so on. But dentists have bought into it. I did. I didn't find this out until just a few years ago. But um well that gets into a political mess and there's no point in going there. It doesn't have anything to do with dental decay.
0: Don't you think that a lot of dentists, once they learn what you're talking about, if they're committed to serving their patients, they would start to place a different type of material in the mouth, not only not mercury, but maybe not even composite.
1: Yes, in fact we now I would just heard a report a few days ago that fifty two percent of the dentists do not place mercury anymore. So we have passed over the halfway point, but to carry it to the extreme, uh, there may be a half a dozen dentists in the United States. Well, we'd have to include a few foreign countries, too. Maybe we could get a half a dozen who would do everything in accordance to, well, basically what I found, you know, 40-some years ago, I made a lot of mistakes that I don't make today. And this is what I teach is... Taking multiple sclerosis, when we first started, we had 10% success rate. Then we found something that pushed it up to 20. Then we found something that pushed it up to 40. Now we're up over 90%. So it's the things that we did 40 years ago that we don't do today and the things we do do that make not only multiple sclerosis but a whole lot of the, quote, incurable diseases Uh, come out of it, but the important thing is those diseases do not have to happen. Multiple sclerosis started in 1832 in Paris. Just by some coincidence, the first commercially placed amalgams were placed in 1832 in Paris. Wow. And if you look at leukemia, it's the same pattern. When they came out with a high copper amalgam in 76, Immediately, everybody adopted it because it was an ADA product. It was a product developed by the American Dental Association. The five years preceding 1976, MS, multiple sclerosis, was occurring uh, an average of 8,800 times a year. Then in 76, it went from 8,800 to 123,000 the next year and it's been on an upward swing since then. Well, the high copper amalgam produces 50 times more mercury and 50 times more copper than the amalgam from 1975. Did you see that on the front page of the newspaper? Is that not significant that we went from 8,800 to 123,000 on the way up? But no, that was not brought forward, and it is... (laughs) You go to the Centers for Disease Control, and, hey, that's what their statistics are. Now uh, let's go back to some of the original vote of what causes dental decay. The Dental Association voted that the hardness of the enamel was related to susceptibility to decay, and that's why they came out with fluoride to harden the surface of the enamel. Well, studies that uh, Steinman did showed that the hardness of the enamel had absolutely nothing to do with the tendency of dental decay. And I just heard yesterday a very frightening story to me. A gal called and said she has an 8-year-old son who is totally decay-free. He's never had a cavity. And the dentist said, oh, these teeth are soft. We better put chrome crowns on all of them to prevent them from getting decay.
0: That's crazy.
1: Well, the chrome crowns is a cutesy name for a nickel product. And nickel is carcinogenic. It gives the body the idea of developing cancer at some point down the line. And it really messes up the urogenital system, the reproductive system and everything, which you don't need to do in five, year olds but that's what is very, very popular in children. Now, you have a cavity, hey, just stick a whole crown on it because they're preformed. It doesn't take you but a few minutes to make one and stick it on, and there's a lot of good money to be made in that. Well, one of Steinman's studies that I found, the last one I'll talk about here, was uh, heredity and uh, Steinman had kind of a, a subtle sense of humor, and uh, they didn't always let him publish his subtle sense of humor, but he found that uh, heredity in examining that. He found that diabetes and dental decay went very closely together, and they were found in families where the children were natural or adopted as long as they ate breakfast at the same table each day. Wow! Uh, heredity, no. Heredity is not the problem. It's your body chemistry. It's your phosphorus going below 3.5. It's a lack of protein in the diet. And at some point in time, yeah, you should brush your teeth. I'm not saying don't brush your teeth. In fact, for gum disease, I've got a uh, 1.3 cent cure for gum disease. I mean, it's 1.3 cents a day. It's not for the whole treatment.
0: Are you talking about flossing?
1: No. It's a matter of using a very strong saltwater solution. Uh, we've had this demonstrated, uh, recently where there's a former employee of mine, uh, from 20 years ago came in and said, hey, they want so many thousand dollars to cut off my gums here. I've got six millimeter pockets around, which is the, the moat around the tooth. And they want to cut them off. And it's going to be expensive. And, you know, I'm retired and it's, it's going to hurt. And, um, she had um, three months before they were going to do this surgery, and I thought, oh, this is a short period of time, but let's give it a try. Put a half a teaspoon of salt in the palm of your hand, lick it off with your tongue, and then put about a tablespoon of uh, warm water in your mouth and aggressively flush it in between the teeth, up and out. Just run really get with it. And I was the one who was most surprised about this. She went in for the surgery. They got everything ready, tipped her back, and he started uh, looking for the pocket depths to decide how much to cut off. He couldn't find one deeper than two millimeters, which is normal health. And he says, You get out of my chair. You don't need any surgery. So in three months' time, the pocket is gone from six. We have seen bone growth and stuff like that due to balancing the chemistry. But I had no idea we could take six-millimeter pockets and bring them down to two, but this was a specialist in periodontics who just lost a whole lot of money by finding that uh, he was honest in saying, hey, the pockets aren't there to be cut off anymore. And that was just salt, pure Well, it is not sea salt, and that's a long story which we're not going to go into. But there's one that does a very good job called pickling and canning salt. And Morton's makes most of it, some of it I think Ball makes. But the pickling and canning salt has the lowest level of aluminum in it of any of them. So that's why we picked it for our general balancing of chemistry. But for gums, good grief, does it cause the gums to come back into line? I have really been surprised. I knew it would help, but I didn't know it was going to create miracles. But really, at about a penny a day, I don't know, around here you get the salt, it's uh, $2 for four pounds, you know, that's enough to last all month. So it's really a very inexpensive way, and talk about killing bacteria. Well, have you ever had a sore throat and gargled with salt water?
0: Right, but I don't know why it works.
1: How long does it take before your throat feels better?
0: I don't know, usually pretty quickly.
1: Yeah, within a couple of three seconds. So it doesn't take long to kill the bacteria because salt kills bacteria.
0: I think that you had said that in our first segment together, and I'm glad you're saying it again. And for those people that heard the first segment with Dr. Hal Huggins and I, we should be trying this. We should be using this morning and night as well, right? Gargling with salt water.
1: For people who are interested in their health.
0: But I want to go back. What about this new procedure where some dentists are using a laser to fill cavities?
1: I don't know a whole lot about it, but it sounds to me like it's a pretty good system.
0: Because one of the things that some dentists have said is that when you fill a cavity, you're actually creating trauma in the
1: tooth. Yeah, yeah, there's no doubt about that. I mean, if you're burning the surface of the enamel, a high-speed drill running 125,000 RPM, uh, if, there, if you're replacing a filling, the amount of mercury that comes out of there is horrendous, way above OSHA standards. So you can't possibly go in and measure the amount of mercury while the dentist is cutting it out, or you'll be fined $10,000 and shut down. So don't let OSHA come into a dental office. We won't have any dentists. And that's because the temperature where the drill hits the amalgam, even if there's a lot of water flowing on it, is up something over a thousand degrees and that does burn the enamel. So I think that uh, laser probably offers a great deal of advantage over that.
0: How have you been guiding people to get rid of their mercury amalgams? I'm sure there's a protocol for that too. I know you've talked about this for 40 years but can you talk a little bit about it because there's a lot of people that really want to take the mercury amalgams out of their mouth. Even though we don't know yet who people are going to be going to, they're going to call you for guidance on who they should go to and what type of material to use. But right now, most of the dentists that do this are using a traditional drill.
1: Uh, Yeah, the high speed. And the thing that is the most dangerous there is which one you're going to take out first. This we discovered back in uh, 1979. Uh, teeth are like little tiny batteries, they have electrical charge on them, and if you take out the fillings, the mercury fillings or nickel fillings, any of them, that have uh, high, <clears throat> well, you've got electrical charge, which means that if you touch it with an ammeter, it's either going to read positive or negative, you know, like both ends of any little battery, one end is positive, the other is negative. Well, if you happen to take out a filling that has positive electrical charge in it first, the patient gets worse. If you take out the filling that has negative charge in it first, the patient gets better. Well, what's the reasoning behind that? It took a bunch of years before I figured that out. I was taking a course at the University of Colorado in forensic toxicology uh, that is the cause of death being drugs that were prescribed by MDs. What did it do that killed people? And we had to study the brain. Well, that's when I discovered what was happening because when you take out a positive, or when you take out a filling, you disturb the sodium and potassium balance at what's called the synapse. Nerves are not solid pieces of wire. You know, they go a little ways, they stop, there's a little space jumps, and then it goes on to another space, and these are called a synapse, and it has to jump across there. Well, in the synapse, there is a lot of chemistry that takes place to get that electrical current to jump the synapse, and sodium and potassium are two of the primaries there. If you take out the positive current filling first, it messes up the sodium-potassium balance so that the impulses go the wrong directions. If you take out the negative ones first, you stimulate four of the endocrine glands. We've talked about hormones before here. You stimulate the four hormonal-producing glands that are associated with healing. The body is constantly undergoing degeneration and regeneration. You know, red blood cells are the famous one. They live 120 days, and then you get new ones in. So all the tissues in the body follow the same pattern, that no tissue lasts forever. We have to get rid of the old ones and put in the new ones. This is under the control of eight endocrine glands, four that are regeneration and four that are degeneration. When you take out the positive current filling first, you're stimulating the degeneration process, which means stimulating disease. And we've had, you know, there aren't too many dentists who will follow this protocol. We have a lot of people calling here say, give me a referral of somebody who can do this properly. And then you find out he's 500 miles away. Eh, well, I'll just go to the guy across the street. So we had somebody call these people back six months later to see what they had done. And those people who just went to the guy across the street and had uh, the fillings replaced in any old way and put in any old white filling, sixty. 60- Three percent had an autoimmune disease they did not have when they went to the dentist. So if you want to create disease, just go yank them out at random, and I'll give you a 63% guarantee you're going to get a new disease or double your amalgams back.
0: How are the charges calculated? In other words, the dentist that's following this protocol, this new protocol, who's looking at, in the mercury amalgams, the positive or the negative charge, how do they get to that? Is there an instrument they use, or what do they
1: There's a meter that you can use. You know, you go into the drugstore to buy a battery, and they've got a meter that you can touch the battery to see whether the battery is charged or if it's uh, worn out. It's a meter like that, only it does something in particular. What we're looking for is amperage as compared to voltage. The amperage is the important part, and you need a meter that will, call. it's called hold the peak, because when you touch it, it's kind of like, you know, a flash, a flash on a camera. When the flash goes off, it's gone. And with the older ones from a few years ago, if you listened, you could hear, as it charged up again. Well, these teeth, If you want to get technical, they're like little tiny capacitors. A capacitor is something that will hold a charge, and you build it up, and then when you release it, you get all of it at once. So when you touch the filling to take the electrical current reading, you get it all at once, and the meter may jump up to 20 or 30, and then it's down to 0 or 10, a quarter of a second later. So you need a meter that will look at the highest point, and register that. There aren't very many of those around. But if you can get a dentist who has a meter that will hold the peak amperage, this is the important thing to make sure you are not triggering the wrong set of endocrine glands. So this is a good news, bad news thing, that just yanking out the fillings, you can very easily end up in worse shape than you were to start with. So my advice is... Uh, there are two ways to do it, fast and right. Take your choice.
0: I'm going to contemplate that. That's pretty
1: profound. If it's you who came down with the disease that you didn't have before, it becomes serious. And then you want to back up and say, uh, can't we put this on uh, instant replay and, and do it over again? Well, it's too late now. It must In be very cases, frustrating it's, it's to be you. too late but you're not going to get the advantage that you could if it was done according to the protocol that eliminates the mistakes that I made 40 years ago.
0: It must be very frustrating and upsetting to be you.
1: You must be psychic. <laughs> you, you figured that one out. Yeah, it, it is a little secret here. I used to wake up every morning feeling that it's my fault that these people are going to get a million amalgams placed today because I haven't stopped it yet. And that did bother me psychologically for more than 10 years. I've finally gotten over it now to the point where yeah, okay, so people die, so what? Well, maybe not quite that far. But yes, it does still bother me, but I know that in going from a million a day down to 150,000 a day, okay, it's Baby steps, but they're in the right direction. And there are a lot of dentists out there who have been beat up. Nobody's ever been beat up as much as they did me because they made me the example worldwide. Um, But I lived through it, and they do. Um, Some of them do. Some of them don't. And there are many of them who are not practicing dentistry now because their license has been removed for standing up for their patients in accordance to the way that uh, I've pointed out, that mercury happens to be a poison. But, you know, if we could find an island someplace where we could set things up where there was no dental association, hey, we could cure a whole lot of diseases. If we were allowed to present information like what I'm talking to Kim about, you know, uh, if I walk out of the office here uh, the day after you present this program, uh, what's going to happen if I don't have my bulletproof vest on?
0: You wear a bulletproof vest?
1: We'll just say there are a lot of things that we do to protect Huggins.
0: Wow. What do you think about teeth whitening?
1: Hmm. I don't suppose that totally answers the question, does it? <laughs> well, right along with what we were talking about, though. Yeah, you know, we were talking about the fluid flow. All right, yes, you can whiten the tooth by bleaching it with hydrogen peroxide or acids and what if the fluid flow what if your serum phosphorus is below 3.5 and the fluids on the outside of the tooth are being sucked into the tooth you're taking those acids in and frying the pulp chamber so maybe it doesn't entirely kill it maybe it takes two or three years but I think we're going to find in a few years I mean Dentists, are, dentists have a quota on root canals, and they have to do 30 million of them a year now, though I understand it's, the quota's been moved to 60 million.
0: Why do you say quotas? I don't get that part.
1: You don't understand what a quota is? Well,
0: I know. Of course I know what a quota is, but why do you say the dentists have quotas? Isn't what they do their own business?
1: Not that I was aware of, no. I mean, it was my business whether I didn't want to place mercury. It was my business whether I didn't want to do red canals. And so my business became destroyed because of that. So, no, we don't have choice in what we do. We cannot. There's called the gag rule. And though there are a couple of states that have ruled that unconstitutional, uh, I'm not sure what they are. One of them was either Washington or Oregon, and seemed like Connecticut was another one. I'm not absolutely sure, but it's someplace in those vicinities where... Millions of dollars in time spent has been put into trying to allow dentists to practice a health profession, because as it is practiced according to the dictates of the Dental Association, there is no way that I can in good conscience call it a health profession. Ooh, I'm going to pay for that one someday.
0: How are you educating other dentists, and what is your take on the dentists being more receptive to this new knowledge?
1: Dentists are highly receptive to it, but um, I used to be the second most popular lecturer in dentistry. I was lecturing over 100 days a year, and I did not lecture June, July, and August. But what dentistry did to prevent that was to say, if Huggins is on your program, you get no postgraduate credit for the entire program. And in one week, I had 18 months of... Uh, advanced bookings on programs absolutely vanish. I mean, the telephone was just constantly ringing because the dentists are not allowed. In fact, some schools, including University of Colorado, I heard uh, the other day, has a one-day course on why you never want to meet Huggins or read anything he ever wrote.
0: You've got to be kidding. Middle
1: schools are teaching, do not do things that are going to protect your patient. They're teaching, do things that have been proven to be dangerous to the patient, and they get away with it, because who's going to try to stop them? Nobody.
0: Do you see dentistry as being able to move into an affordable practice? I mean, most of it's not covered by people's insurance. It's extremely expensive. I'm not saying dentists shouldn't make money, but my point is that I know so many people that are not in a position
1: Mm -hmm. to get
0: the help they need, and it's frightening. It's frightening.
1: Well, uh, there for a while, uh I did work. Now, I haven't done dentistry since 1984. I went into body chemistry at that time. So it was kind of a, a farce to take away my license to do what I hadn't done in 15 years anyway. But it scared everybody. But uh then I got an offer to work in Mexico. So I worked down there and uh twenty thirty thousand dollar dental cases down there were five to seven thousand. What we could do was take American dentists down there and have them perform because the Mexican dentistry is not quite the same quality as American, but uh, we took some of the dentists who had lost their license uh, down there and um it was a pretty good system because it was highly affordable uh we would treat uh 20 patients uh 20 to 25 patients every 3 weeks and uh nobody complained about the fees and we got some uh, marvelous things happening and uh, now it's kind of uh kind of dangerous to go to Mexico so that's why i i was not kidding when i said if we could find an island someplace <clears throat> where we could do all of this we could save millions of people uh, a whole lot of suffering. Uh, one guy even offered uh, to put up $35 million to build a ship with everything on it that we needed, the laboratories, the medical facility, dental facility, <clears throat> the places to teach them how to cook and everything that would be offshore a little ways so that they, we were not bothered by licensure. And, uh, you know, I've lectured in 14 different countries, and there are a lot of MDs in particular in those countries who would like to learn my technology of body chemistry. We could bring them in and teach. Uh, One time in Italy, I was lecturing over there. I had an audience of a couple hundred people, which is very nice. But it was in a university. And even in Italy, the people were told if a professor or a student from the dental school at the university were seen at my lecture, they would be kicked out of school, either the professors or the students. So that's how much power the American Dental Association has worldwide.
0: So what happened to the $35 million investor?
1: Uh, he had something to do with uh, $2 billion that was being put up that had under the control of a former president of the United States And um, the money got diverted into the oil industry instead of into the health industry. And after hanging around for a year and a half, waiting every week for something to happen, (coughs) nothing happened. Understood. Now that's not too good an idea because when you drive up a ship like that and say, fill her up... (laughs) You better have a million dollars in your pocket because that's what it costs to fill up one of those. Well, there's
0: complications even with a ship because you're under maritime law. You're under a whole
1: different Maritime law has nothing to do with medicine and dentistry.
0: Well, there's stuff having to do with the ICC, International Chamber of Commerce. The International Chamber of Commerce has a lot of interesting things in there that can actually interfere with practicing on a ship but that's a whole other deal. Yeah,
1: that's why I think give me an island someplace.
0: <laughs> yeah I think an island is best. Yeah. Is there anything else you'd like to share with us today?
1: Well let's see I have a little list of notes here which I haven't looked at yet. Uh, what are you going to brush your teeth with?
0: Yes what are you going to brush your teeth with?
1: One of the best things to brush your teeth with happens to be one of the cheapest, and that is a mixture of table salt, going back to the pickling and canning salt, salt and soda. And 50-50 is a little strong for some people. You may want a little more baking soda than salt in it, but as you get accustomed to it, you can move the other direction, have more salt than uh, soda, and your gums turn into cast iron and just really turn into good health. But... You know, I was raised during the Second World War, and toothpaste tubes were made out of lead, and we had to use lead to kill people at that time. So salt and soda was the only thing we had. I'm still using it.
0: Doesn't baking soda, eventually, if you use that to brush your teeth, doesn't it make your teeth extra sensitive or kind of too coarse for the teeth?
1: No. like I said, I've used it almost seventy-five years, and it hasn't made mine sensitive yet.
0: What are we talking about? A okay, teaspoon. Let's start
1: out with something like sixty uh, percent baking soda, forty percent salt. You mix it as a powder. Put it in the palm of your hand, about a half a teaspoon, and wet the toothbrush. Touch it to that, and it leaps on the toothbrush, and have at it.
0: And we have to make sure our baking soda doesn't have aluminum in it.
1: That would be nice. I was wondering whether to bring that up or yeah,
0: not. Yeah, actually, I think it's Bob's. Bob's has baking soda that doesn't have aluminum in it. So I'm writing that down.
1: <laughs> okay.
0: I have his baking powder, but I don't know about the baking soda. We'll have to check that out.
1: That's still the best thing to do to keep the gums in good shape and to keep the decay rate down. Um, I might mention another thing in New Zealand back in the 80s, I think it was around 84 to 90, uh, they decided to do children uh, a whole lot of good over there. So they took all the children in junior high and filled all their teeth with amalgam. And some of these kids were, you know, they had absolutely perfect teeth. Well. Now that we've gone about 30 years since then, we're having a real big epidemic of multiple sclerosis and Alzheimer's. And it's due to all those fillings. And one of the big men down there, when he found out about our ship concept, wanted us to bring the ship down there and dock at 20 different places and uh, um, not at the same time and uh, take out these amalgams because the country cannot afford, you know, they've got socialized medicine Uh, they cannot afford to handle all these Alzheimer's people because they're going into Alzheimer's at uh, 50 and 60 years old where they may have to be taken care of for another 20, 30 years, and the the country can't afford it.
0: My mother had a lot of mercury amalgam fillings and died of Alzheimer's, and it was terrible, terrible what happened to her. And nobody knew then, you know, nobody
1: knew. Well, there's so many of these diseases uh, we 're talking about more than fifty autoimmune diseases in fact i 've got um, one of our people here who knows how to operate a computer is looking at all the diseases that have started since nineteen forty Hey, how long has man been on the planet? Uh, the last fifty sixty years is kind of a small percentage as to how long we 've been on the planet, and we 're having a lot of new diseases and my prediction is we 're going to see more of them every year because people's immune systems are dropping, and uh, mainly due to dental materials and the diet we shouldn't be on. And it's kind of like if the ocean dropped 20 feet in level, what do you think would happen? We'd have a whole lot of islands that weren't there before. And that's what's happening with our immune system. It's able to handle things today, but if immune competence, ability, drops by... 10 or 20 percent, we're going to have a whole lot of new diseases. Try to find somebody who's got AIDS who uh, does not have amalgam in their mouth or never has. Uh, I think Rock Hudson was one of the first to bring up the AIDS thing, and his sexual partner did not have AIDS. Well, my guess is he didn't have any amalgam. That's
0: interesting. But we do
1: see that taking the amalgams out does change the lymphocytes. I mean, my work in immunology was primarily with white blood cells. And, hey, these babies can respond in a matter of days if you give them the right diet and uh, get the cause, get the mercury out of there. Then the immune system can come back to capacity and, you know, maybe you cure it, maybe you just improve it. But uh, at any rate, either one is going to be uh, worthwhile. But there are a lot more autoimmune diseases that are occurring that do not have to occur and can be improved if you go through all this stuff that we go through, which or we used to until my practice was destroyed. Um, in fact, it's kind of interesting. We had something called the bubble operatory, <clears throat> which was a very special uh, operatory. Somebody said that it looked like a great big pumpkin. Well, I was kind of insulted, and then I looked and yeah, it's shaped like a pumpkin on the top, its own air conditioning and heating and everything, which was kind of great. It did look like a pumpkin. And it was all in a Faraday cage, which neutralizes any electrical energy like radio and television and cell phones and all that. And inside of that, boy, did we see some miracles happen. But the state attorney general made me destroy it because it, ready for this, implied that mercury was poisonous. <laughs> we had. But, you know, if you can use all these things, uh, you can cause a whole lot of health to occur. Uh, you know, if you want to drop the, uh, well, let's look at Sweden. Uh, Sweden was the first country that I worked with that uh, got rid of amalgam. The first year, just measuring the number of days, of missed work like this is kind of hard to say, they measured the number of sick days before and after they stopped placing amalgam, and they found that within one year of stopping placing amalgam, that little country saved $1 billion by people not calling in sick. And that's all they did. You know, they didn't take the amalgams out. They didn't balance chemistry. They didn't do any of these things that uh, we used to do. And they still... Now, if that little country can save $1 how much could we save in a year as far as our health care system is concerned? I mean, we'd be into the trillions that uh, Obama's talking about just by practically doing nothing And then if you want to try helping some of these people, we could save a few more trillions.
0: Do I dare ask you at the end of this show what your perspective on fluoride is relative to the mouth and the teeth? No.
1: (laughs) That was the shortest answer I've come up with, isn't it? (laughs) No, uh, dentists are so emotionally joined at the hip with fluoride that it is... um, it's a losing situation to try to discuss it.
0: Get it? It's, it's clear. Is an
1: enzyme inhibitor; it kills anything it touches. In fact, fluoride in water—this is kind of interesting—was discovered in Colorado Springs by Dr. Frederick McKay, whose family were patients of mine. And um, when he first came out with with this, showing how much fluoride we had, sixteen parts per million at that time. Um, well, we had—that's how much we had when I was a kid. Um, <clears throat> the federal government said, we are not going to announce that there is fluoride in the water in Colorado Springs because this would ruin the tour industry. And at that time, you know, we're talking 1920s, 30s, 40s, at that time, tourism was the biggest industry in Colorado Springs. So they didn't announce there was fluoride in the water because people would be afraid of it and not come here for their vacations.
0: So is your water still fluoridated?
1: well that was natural fluoride which is not what they're using today what they're using today is do you know what a scrubber is where they have coal plants and they're burning coal to make electricity and they have scrubbers in the chimney to um, uh, clean up the air before it gets put out to the public what they're doing is cleaning out the scrubbers and selling that as a fluoride product Now. The Dental Association in Colorado Springs a few years ago talked the city into spending $1.2 million on a fluoridation system, which we didn't need, but they were going to put it in anyway. So the city bought it and then put it up to vote. And there was, talk about the influence of one person, there was one woman who found out what they were using, and it had a lot of lead in it. So she did not mention the word fluoride because that's way, way, way too emotional. So she pointed out that the amount of lead that they would be putting in the water would interfere with the development of their children's brains, and this is something that's inappropriate. And it got voted down. So they've got the equipment sitting here, and uh, dentistry is very upset about it, but they're not using it because they're bringing in water from other areas now, so we don't have as much fluoride as we used to. But it seems that the fluoride that was in the water when I was a kid was not that damaging. But what they're putting in is damaging, especially when there is lead and all these other things that are included in it. And there's a new form of fluoride that I've just heard of recently that they're putting in that is more toxic than what they were using. But it was interesting also that when this battle was going on, They asked the head of the Dental Association, well, isn't fluoride a poison? He said, well, that's only if you get up to 4.7 parts per million. And we're aiming for three parts per million, which is safe, unless you take two drinks of water instead of one was my thought on that. And then this gets to be a little bit more interesting.
0: Here's the issue with that. Nobody knows how many glasses of water a person, whether it's a young child or a teen or an adult, is going to drink a day.
1: And if you're working outside or if you're working inside, might that make a difference? But the important thing is, if four point seven is dangerous, how much is in toothpaste? That's a great if question, intelligent gal. Give me a guess. This is just a, you know, play a game with me. If 4.7 parts per million would be dangerous or anything above that, how much would they put in the toothpaste?
0: I have no clue.
1: 1,500 parts per million.
0: How do you know that?
1: Look into the chemistry of it. That's how much is in there. Look at the percentage of fluoride that's in the toothpaste. All of them aim for 1,500, but that may not be true today because a few years ago they were going to adopt the European standard. Which is 2,500 parts per million fluoride.
0: I recently got
1: information at a meeting in Paris, in which they were discussing uh, controlling dental decay worldwide. There were I don't know 50 different nations represented. I was one of the speakers there, and they were talking about. And that's the first time that I knew there was 1,500 parts per million fluoride in the water. And this was presented at an international uh, dental conference but they did say that they were going to reduce the dental decay in these states even more by raising that to 2,500. Now, whether that's been done or not, that part, I don't know.
0: It's also interesting that putting fluoride into the mouth, it's perceived as being topical and that it doesn't penetrate the teeth, the gums, or anything else.
1: Well, if you have heart disease and you've got a flare-up and you need to take nitroglycerin Uh, Where do you put it? You take a nitroglycerin tablet, you put it under the tongue. Why? Because the absorption is faster there than practically any other place in the external parts of the body. So in the number one fastest, number two is actually under the tongue. The fastest absorption in the body is in the cheeks. So you're going to put it in the mouth At the fastest absorption and tell me that it's not absorbed that's like making the toxic properties of mercury harmless it doesn't it gets absorbed instantly I mean if you've ever been around somebody who has angina and they take the uh, the nitroglycerin and put it under their tongue the relief is within a matter of seconds or minutes a few minutes at the most but it's generally very very rapid that shows how long it takes for a total systemic reaction. So it takes just a matter of a few seconds for the absorption to go right into the body and it's not very far from the mouth to the brain, I might mention.
0: I want to invite you back to the show to talk about implants and a few other matters relative to dentistry in the body. And I'd like to ask you if there's anything else you'd like to share with us today.
1: Well, I think that's probably enough to put it down somebody's throat, should we say? (laughs) Something to do with the mouth. But this, uh, I do appreciate uh, your taking the time to do this. I know we've uh, gone a little more than the 30 minutes I thought. That's okay.
0: That's okay. Ladies and gentlemen, we have been talking with, learning from, and listening to Dr. Hal Huggins at drhuggins.com, drhuggins.com. com. I want to thank you for being with us, and I look forward to having you back again, Dr. Huggins.
1: Well, thank you for helping us generate awareness. That's what my life is all about, Kim. I appreciate you.
0: God bless you.